Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Ron Chernow, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and biographer. He's written lives of John D. Rockefeller, George Washington, and Alexander Hamilton. Indeed, the last of those books was adapted by Lin-Manuel Miranda for his smash success, Hamilton, which is sold out in a city near you. Chernow served as a consultant on the production. His latest book is Grant, an account of Ulysses S. Grant, the former Union general and two-term American president. Ron Chernow joins me now from New York City. Ron, thank you so much for being here. A delight to be here, Isaac. Thank you. So why Ulysses S. Grant? Okay. Well, you know, after I I did Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, I thought that I should give the Founding Fathers a a breather. Uh, And I had always had a fantasy about doing a big epic saga of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, And Ulysses S. Grant is really the figure that unites those two uh, periods. And I think what a lot of Americans don't realize is they're, they're two acts of the same drama. And I'm struck by how many Americans know the Civil War in great detail, and they know nothing about Reconstruction. But folks, if you don't know anything about Reconstruction, you walked out in the middle of the play. So, and why is Grant a great bridge figure for those those two eras that are, as you're saying, should be um, both studied well, more? Well, he's, you know, he's the um, uh, victorious uh, uh, Union general during the Civil War. So he's the ideal figure for telling the story of 1861 to 1865. Then 1865 to 1869, he still is general in chief, which is very, very important during that period. Because the radical Republicans in, in Congress impose military rule on the South. The South is divided into five military districts and all five military districts are reporting to Grant. So he's kind of like the czar of the South. And then he's, of course, the two-term president um, overseeing uh, Reconstruction. So everything significant that happens between 1861 and 1877, Ulysses S. Grant is right smack in the middle of the action. There's been some controversy or some debate in recent years about how good a General Grant actually was. What, what is your take on that? Something you talk about in the book. Oh, I think that he was the military genius produced by the the Civil War, and I think that he was far superior to uh, Robert E. Lee. You know, when Grant took over um, all of the Union armies in 1864, they had been operating as uh, separate armies in different uh, theaters of war. You know, it was Grant who saw the necessity of all of those separate um, uh, armies operating as one. You know, Robert E. Lee had a strategy for winning individual battles. Ulysses S. Grant had a strategy for winning the war. And as William Tecumseh Sherman said, his great uh, commander, Grant had a strategy that embraced a continent. Robert E. Lee had a strategy that uh, embraced one small state. And it's very strange to me that uh, people would consider Lee the superior uh, general because Ulysses S. Grant actually captures Three Confederate armies at Fort Donelson in Tennessee in 1862, at Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1863, and most famously at Appomattox Courthouse in 1865. Robert E. Lee never captured a single Union army, so it's rather puzzling why historically his reputation has been so large. Well, one one issue about his historical reputation and why perhaps it's so large has to do with the whole way the United States views the Civil War and views the Confederacy. I was wondering what you made of Lee as a figure who I think has been talked about probably more in the last few months than certainly than in the last few years. Uh, what, what you made of him as a figure from your researches and if anything changed about the impression you had of him maybe growing up or when 
when you were starting to read history? And uh, that's an, that's an excellent question because the um, the story that's always told and the one that I knew was that when the Civil War broke out that uh, Robert E. Lee had been offered the command of the Union Army, uh, but he felt that he had to defect to the Confederacy because he could not fight against his native state of uh, Virginia. Actually, the deeper I got into the research about Robert E. Lee, he was a true believer um, in the Confederacy and in the agenda of the Confederacy, which was pure and simple slavery. Um, I'll give you a couple of things that he uh, said. Um, Robert E. Lee said that uh, slavery was... Um, a, a painful but necessary form of discipline for blacks so that they could achieve a higher form of civilization. Um, he said uh, after the Civil War, he said, I noticed that wherever the black man is, things are always going down. Wherever the white man is, things are always uh, improving. So I found that he was kind of much more of a true believer in the Confederate cause. And it went beyond just this simple sentimental story that he felt an attachment to his uh, native state. So just to return to Grant for a minute and sure. his his career as a general, which uh, you think very highly of, what was mm. it? What is it or what was it about his early life that um, maybe um, suggested that he could be such a great general when, when you're researching his early life? What what did you make of that? And how did you how did you view the turn he made into into a young man, into this incredible military figure? Well, what happened was, you know, uh, he went to uh, West Point, not uh, because he was particularly interested in a military career, but his skinflint of a father thought that it would be a free form of uh, public uh, uh, vocational uh, training, really. Uh, Grant then fought with distinction um, in the uh, Mexican War. Uh, he was drummed out of the army in disgrace in 1854 because of a, a drinking problem that would shadow and you know haunt his reputation for many years to come. So what happened when the Civil War breaks out uh, in 1861, Grant has failed at one business after another. At the time, he's working as a clerk a junior clerk in his father's leather goods store in uh, Galena, Illinois. Then the Confederates fire on Fort Sumter. Two months later, Grant is a colonel. Four months later, he's a brigadier general. Ten months later, he's a major general. And then by the end of the war, he's general in chief. He has a million soldiers under his uh, command. And, um, you know, one thing that's often uh, said about the um, – you know, the, strat the historians who feel that Lee was the superior general, they say, well, Grant always had uh, the superior northern uh, manpower and manufacturing behind him. But if you look at the uh, the war in Virginia before Ulysses S. Grant came along in the final year of the war against uh, Lee, there had been six Union <laughs> generals with that same advantage in terms of population and uh, manufacturing who had been unable to defeat uh, Lee, whereas Ulysses S. Grant not only defeats Lee, but he surrounds his army and uh, captures it at uh, at Appomattox. So just to turn to to Grant as as the president um I think his presidency is generally seen as uh, not a super successful one what what is your what is your take on his presidency and how we should view it today Well you know Grant's presidency has always been seen as a failed uh, presidency it's it's caricatured as a presidency that is dominated by um corruption and nepotism and cronyism and all of those things went on and I tried at great length to deal with them uh in the book but a couple of points uh Grant himself was not involved in the cor corruption he did not condone it he actually vigorously prosecuted it when um, he found out about it. But one great flaw that he had, 
He was incurably um, naive person in certain ways. He was blind to unscrupulous people around him. So I go through all of the, the scandals and what happened. But to my mind, that's the minor story of his um, presidency, however important. The major story is what Ulysses S. Grant did to protect the four million former slaves, now full-fledged American citizens with the right to vote, at least black males were uh, allowed to vote, and who were subjected to a reign of terror by the Ku Klux Klan uh, in the South. Um, Grant hires crusading attorney general from Georgia named Amos Ackerman, who brings 3,000 indictments against the Klan. And this, mind you, at a time when no Southern sheriff would arrest a member of the Klan, no Southern white would testify against a member of the Klan, no Southern jury would convict a member of the the Klan. And this, to me, is really the big story of his administration. As Frederick Douglass said after Grant's crusade against the Klan, he said, the slaughter and scourging of our people have stopped. Frederick Douglass also said uh, to Grant, the Negro, more than any other man, owes his enfranchisement. And he said that Grant was the vigilant, firm, impartial, and wise protector of our race. So he was revered by the African-American uh, community uh, for this. And it's a forgotten story. So Reconstruction basically ends after Grant's presidency. And there's always been a lot of talk of, well, if Lincoln had lived, how would Reconstruction or how would the post-Civil War era have been different? It seems like one thing that you're implying is that not just, I mean, forgetting Lincoln for a minute, that if Grant had remained in office or if someone with his similar views had remained in office rather than having Rutherford B. Hayes being elected in 1876, that you would have seen a different course for the South. Well, you know, what happened by uh, Grant's uh, second term in office, not only was there, of course, the violent uh, backlash uh, in the South uh, in the form of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, and other similar groups, but alas, there was a waning of Northern support for Reconstruction. And interestingly um, enough, uh, it was the liberal progressive wing of the Republican Party, because the Republican Party was the liberal abolitionist party. It was the liberal progressive wing, really, that uh, turned its back um, on the blacks in the South. It was more the so-called stalwarts of the party. These were the people derided as the party bosses who actually remained truer to the um, abolitionist um, uh, agenda of the uh, party. So that by the time Grant leaves office in 1877, there's the famous disputed election of 1876. Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, who was um, a Republican, uh, becomes president. And really a deal is hatched with the South that during the disputed election um, that he will, that Hayes will become president president in exchange for pulling out the remaining federal troops from the South. And that really brings down the curtain on Reconstruction. You know, and then what happens is um, Jim Crow sets in and race relations in the South are frozen until the civil rights movement of the 1950s and the blacks have returned to a kind of form of serfdom in the South. So then tell me, just to go back to where you started, what is it that you think that we should why is reconstruction so important and why why is it understudied and what should we be what should we be taking from it that that maybe people don't well you know the view of reconstruction you know again um very much colored by uh, the writings of uh, southern historians pro confederate uh, historians for many uh, years was that um reconstruction <clears throat> was a fiasco it was a fiasco of corrupt 
carpetbag, you know, northern politicians who went south and of illiterate, uh, inept blacks who managed to um, gain office during that uh, uh, period. You know, in uh, recent years, under the influence of people like Eric Foner, the great historian at uh, Columbia, you know, Reconstruction is now seen as a glorious attempt if ultimately a doomed one, to create a fully biracial society. We had uh, 600 blacks in the South serving in Southern legislators, leg- legislatures. Uh, we had uh, 14 um, black congressmen. We had two black uh, senators. And also most amazing, I found doing this book, we had a civil rights movement in the South, in this country, in the late 1860s and early 1870s that's completely unknown today. You've written a lot of very big books about very powerful men, which obviously George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Ulysses S. Grant, Rockefeller, these are these are in some ways very different figures, but they also have a lot of similarities. What what is it that attracts you to powerful, large historical figures in American historical figures? Well, you know, I, I'm attracted to these figures in part because I think that they're wonderful uh, vehicles for telling the story of um, major periods in American history. So that I found that uh, doing Alexander Hamilton and George uh, Washington um, is a way of simultaneously telling the story of the Revolutionary War, the Constitutional Convention, and the forging of the federal government in the same way that Grant, I found, was the perfect vehicle for telling the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I have a contrarian streak in my nature. I feel very often when figures have been, you know, overlooked, underrated, um, misunderstood that I'm attracted to that. So when I started working on Alexander Hamilton back in 1998, uh, he was forgotten by most uh, Americans. He was very often demonized and his opponent Jefferson was often uh, glorified. You know, so I'm attracted to those situations. What interested you about Washington then? Because that's the opposite is the case with Washington. Yeah. So Washington did not have that reputational uh, problem. But what I found was that, you know, there had been 900 books written about George Washington, 900 biographies since he died. Um, and But I felt that no one had kind of humanized him or dramatized him. And I felt that there was a significant misunderstanding about his uh, personality, that he was considered cold, reserved, uh, and quite aloof. I found him quite an emotional uh, character, quite prone to both temper tantrums and uh, uh, tears, but all kind of um, hidden behind, you know, the the cloak of this immense, you know, reserve and dignity that uh, he had. So I felt that I could change people's view of him. And also that um, as I got uh, deeply into that, that he was a flaming militant in the in the cause. You know, everything that I had read led me to believe that he, you know, was kind of a reserved and mild-mannered, um, uh, person, whereas you start reading his letters, you know, written during the Revolutionary War, and he's breathing fire. So I like uh, changing the view that people have, and particularly these figures who may seem gro- great but rather remote, making them more accessible to the average reader. After your immersion in these very powerful men, do you, do you feel like you've come away with more general thoughts about power and um, maybe its corrupting nature or its limitations? Is there is there anything about power as a concept and that that sticks out to you? I think that you know um, power is certainly corrupting. Famous Lord Acton, you know, an absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I think the thing that's less often noticed is that power can also um, ennoble people. Power can also free people to follow the best impulses in their nature so that, for instance, 
Ulysses S. Grant, you know, and all the extraordinary things that he did to protect the African-American community uh, in the South. There was some political uh, self-interest uh, uh, in it because um, that was an important part of the political base of the Republican Party uh, in the uh, in, in the South. But um, even, you know, during his second term in office where he, you know, knows he's not going to uh, have a third uh, term, you know, he still remains relentless in protecting the black community. And so I think that, uh, you know, there are cases in history where people achieve so much uh, power that it allows them to indulge their their better self rather than their you know worse self. I was thinking about uh, our current president when you said that because the the opposite seems to have been the case. He he either has no interest or no ability to use his power to bring about a better self, and that there's there's been no erosion in his pettiness or nastiness or anything since he achieved um, the greatest power you can have. Yeah, well, you know, I've 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 thought you know a, a lot of, about this, and and because Grant is now the second president that I've uh, written about, and I think that the most important <clears throat> thing that a president can you know bring to the office is um, a moral authority and a moral um, uh, clarity, you know, and to try to kind of you know lift the public up rather than to um, uh, bring them uh, down. And I also think that the uh, the great presidents. We're all ones who have expanded our sense of freedom and tolerance. You know, the people, the presidents who have been attracted to defending the uh, underdogs, the top dogs do pretty well in our society <laughs> without their needing a great deal of help from the um, uh, from 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 the president. So I think that there's uh, you know a lot that uh, Trump could learn. I wish he was a reader of of, of history. I'm not aware that he does read any uh, history about. Do you ever think you could write a biography? Speaking of Trump, um, do you ever think you could write a biography of uh, someone you considered uh, truly cruel or evil? No, no, it's a very good question. Uh, I could not uh, write a biography of someone who was um, a, a bigot. That I know, and um, even when I was writing like J.P. Morgan and uh, Johnny Rockefeller, you know, they had there was kind of a strong abolitionist, you know, side to their well, Washington did have slaves. Washington did have slaves, um, uh, but Washington was also the only founder uh, who, um, in his will, freed the slaves, at least those slaves that were under his direct legal control. So in his will, uh, 125 slaves were freed. None of the other founders uh, uh, did that. And, you know, Washington's story was interesting because he was always, um, not always, certainly by the time of the Revolutionary War, he was opposed to slavery uh, in, in, in theory, um, had difficulty in practice kind of making that a political issue. But what I, I, I mean, so he's not, you know, he's not a saint, but he was not a hate-filled uh, person. I found this with, with, with Grant too. You know, you have to realize that uh, during, um, you know, this period, even though the North was fighting first to preserve the Union and then to, uh, to free the slaves later on, um, you know, you read Grant's <coughs> correspondence with William Tecumseh Sherman and uh, Phil uh, uh, Sheridan, and whether Sherman and Sheridan, you know, were talking about uh, Native Americans or African Americans, you know, they're talking about them in you know the most derogatory uh, language. Uh, Grant was someone never used the uh, never used the N word. I did not find him at all a person uh, filled with uh, hatred. In fact, he said extraordinary things. In terms of the relationship of the, you know, the white community toward uh, Native uh, Americans, he said uh, God did not put 
different races on earth so that the stronger could exterminate the weaker. You know, he said that the Native Americans, um, you know, needed to be as protected as much from the whites as, as, as vice versa. He really had a lot of uh, sympathy both for African-American and um, uh, Native uh, Americans. So I interrupted you, but so tell me, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but why why couldn't you do some a book about someone who was bigoted, who you saw as bigoted, or what, what is it exactly that, that would keep you from wanting to do that? Well, I think that in the same way that I could just, uh, you know, in a social uh, situation, if I'm at a party and someone starts, you know, spouting bigoted statements, I want to get out of the room as quickly as I can, the idea, because I spent five or six uh, years with the book, and I just find that uh, when someone you know makes a, a racist uh, uh, statement, there's a switch that flips uh, in my mind, and um, I just want to distance myself from that person. And I think as a biographer, you know, um, you don't history is not the lives of saints; these are all people who have you know significant uh, flaws. But you have to be willing to kind of enter into the emotional life of the person and to project yourself imaginatively into the uh, person. So I kind of like the people, like writing about people, not who are perfect, because there are no perfect people, but where I feel that the, the good elements, you know, have a preponderance over the bad uh, elements. You say you spent five or six years. Is there anyone who, when it was over, you were really sad to lose their company, as it were? Well, you know, I never, I never say goodbye to them because, um, <laughs> I mean, for instance, Hamilton. I, you know, that book came out in uh, uh, two thousand four, and, and, and uh, you know, now because of the uh, the, the musical, I'm never going to get uh, rid of him. But I continue to to you know lecture about them and and, and talk about them, so that uh, you know, as a biographer, your subjects end up forming part of a kind of large extended. Uh, family, so that you never fully say goodbye. But I will say, because people often ask me, you know, when I write the last line of the book, am I sad? And I say, hell no, I'm so relieved that it's over because these are, you know, colossal uh, research problems, uh, projects to do these long books. And I'm just so glad <laughs> when it's over. Before I ask you about the musical, I was just going to ask, you know, you're both a scholarly historian and someone who writes popular history books that are, you know, uh, have wide releases and are read by large audiences. Um, how do you feel about the term popularizer? And do you feel like your writing is or is not different if you were writing for, you know, a small university press versus, you know, a large publishing house? Yeah, it's good. It's a good question. I always have resisted <clears throat> the term uh, popular historian. I prefer non-academic uh, historian because I think that the best non-academic uh, historians um, do as much research and certainly write as well, you know, uh, as the academic historians. And we have quite a number of very good academic, you know, um, biographers as well. So what I try to do in the uh, in my books, maybe one reason why they're so long, is that um, I'm writing simultaneously for the informed lay reader and for the expert. So I like to think with all of my books that I've put a lot of new information um, on the table, uh, not simply to for the general reader, but even for an academic uh, scholar, that there'll be a lot of uh, new information. And I feel lucky that I've managed to get those audiences. And in, in, in general, I've, I've even had very, very good reviews from the um, academic uh, historians, which is very nice. 
So inevitably, I need to ask you about the musical, which I, uh, <laughs> admit, which I must admit that I have not seen. Uh, so I'm, I did not do my proper research uh, for this uh, for this interview. But when you first heard the idea when your book was adapted, uh, it doesn't intuitively, at least to me, seem like a great idea, which obviously it was. What, what was your first feeling when you heard the idea? You know, I was I was intrigued, but I was skeptical. I met Lin Manuel Miranda. He told me he had read my. Hamilton book on vacation. He said that hip-hop songs started rising off the page. He started telling me that Hamilton's life was a classic hip-hop narrative. <laughs> Needless to say, all of this was news to news to me. And But then as we started working together, I became the historical advisor. And as Lynn started sending me via email, he would send me each song as he wrote it. You know, um, I thought that it was astonishing what he was doing. But during all those years, you know, I would run into friends. I'd say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm involved in a hip-hop musical about Alexander Hamilton. And they got a smirk that I began to think of as the springtime for Hitler smirk. You know, for those of you who've seen the producers, either the the movie, you know, or the, the show, you know, it's about these two down-and-out producers who try to come up with the single worst idea ever for a Broadway musical, and they come up with something called springtime for Hitler. <laughs> and... Um, so people, when I would tell them about this hip-hop Hamilton musical, they'd get this strange look, and they would say, do you expect anyone to go see it? And I'd say, oh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite terrific. So it was a relief when the show opened, and I'd say to people, well, go to see it. Now, you know, you don't have to take my, my word for it. But there was no way to explain. The show was so original and so unique. There was no way that I could describe to people the experience because I couldn't say it was like A, B, C, or D. It was like nothing else under the sun. How many times have you seen it now? I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. But remember, I was kind of a member of the you know creative team. And you know certainly in the early months of the show when Lynn was still rewriting, uh, he wanted us all to see it like every third night. So I was kind of living at the theater. Actually, I was in the you know the theater most nights. Uh, and then by day, I was writing Ulysses as grad, so I was shuttling from the you know, the 18th century to the 19th century, occasionally coming up for air in the 21st century. It was a pretty intense experience. I, I, I don't mean this is a criticism at, at all of the show. I'm, mm. I'm not asking you to criticize the show. What I'm mm. what I'm asking is, have people who seen the show have an impression of Hamilton? That's different than, say, the impression you had, or that you think one might get from from your book. I mean, is there a way in which Hamilton's public perception has changed in a way that has surprised you because of the show? Yeah, I don't know. You know, um, I felt that my job as historical ad advisor, even though the um, the show was stimulated uh, by the book, I felt that my job as historical advisor was not to kind of impose my view. After all, I had 800 pages to give my view of Alexander Hamilton. Um, I felt that my job was to help um, Lynn to realize his vision of Hamilton. And he had, you know, certain points of um, uh, entry. Uh, he felt a profound personal identification with Hamilton. So just to give one instance of where, you know, maybe the show differs from the, the book, uh, Lynn's family uh, is from Puerto Rico. He's been very involved recently with the Puerto Rican hurricane uh, relief. Uh, his father uh, came to the United States when he was in his late teens, as Hamilton had come from the Caribbean. And so, you know, Lynn sees Hamilton as the original immigrant. And there's a very, very strong pro-immigration theme to the show, which is, I think is great given what's going on uh, at the uh, at the moment. And uh, I can't say as I was writing the book, I was aware that Hamilton had come from 
the Caribbean, but I wasn't um, as aware as I think Lynn was of Hamilton as um, immigrants. So, you know, he kind of personalized it in uh, different ways. I think it's one of the things that makes it a powerful and very deeply felt uh, show that it came from this very strong identification that Lynn had with certain aspects of Hamilton's life. Well, I uh, I look forward to seeing the show, and if uh, if you can help me with tickets, uh, that would be, <laughs> be fantastic. It won't disappoint you, I guarantee it. <laughs> uh, Ron Chernow, the new book is Grant, and it is out now, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling, with help today from Chris O'Day. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. There's one other thing I want to tell you about today. The shocking results of the 2016 election left many people wondering how our country would change under a Trump presidency. Now, with a year gone by, Slate will take stock of the year that was. You can join a bunch of Slate writers for a series of one-on-one conversations with those at the forefront of politics, media, the law, and activism as they compare notes on the lessons, challenges, and victories they have seen over the past year and what they expect going forward. The event is called The People vs. Trump Year One, and it's taking place on November 8th at 7.30. So if you're in New York, you should show up at the New School Auditorium, which is at 66 West 12th Street in New York. You can get tickets and information by going to slate.com slash live.